Hello, friends, and welcome to another special edition of Tome Show News. I'm your Tome Show News anchor, Lewis Brenton. Normally on TSN, we do a short 10 to 15 minute show of short news features about Dungeons and Dragons and the D&D community. Today, however, we have the opportunity to focus on a recent Dungeons and Dragons publication. On July 30th, award-winning author and designer Keith Baker released his newest Eberron resource, Exploring Eberron, a new source book for further adventures in the Eberron campaign setting. Keith's original Eberron campaign setting book came out during the Dungeons and Dragons 3rd edition days, technically 3.5, in 2004, with many other RPG books and novels following. We're delighted to have the chance now to spend some time with Keith and discuss his newest book. Mr. Keith Baker, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me, Lewis. Well, it is an absolute pleasure for me to get to have this conversation with you, my friend, so thank you for that. So uh, as we begin today, Keith, let me start by just asking, before we get into the new book, can I ask you to tell me a little bit about your history with tabletop gaming, specifically pre-Eberron? So I started Dungeons and Dragons with the White Box originally, uh, and then with AD&D, the the three original hardcovers, back when I was probably eight or nine. And it took a little while before I actually started playing it. But certainly when I was, you know, nine years old, the Monster Manual was just the most amazing book in the world. Because, you know, here you have this catalog of monsters with, like, actual statistics for them. You know, like, again, back in the day, there was just nothing like that. So uh, it was pretty amazing. I started playing when I was in high school and pretty much ever, ever since then. Uh, I did, after college, I started doing some freelance writing. I was working in the computer game industry, but I did some freelance work for Atlas Games, Green Ronin, uh, a few other companies, Goodman Games. And so I was, I was in, you know, freelancing, but when the fantasy setting search happened and Eberron uh, was chosen, that was truly a miraculous, you know, moment. I knew I wanted to be in the, the business, but I wasn't expecting to have that kind of success. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned you started with the white box. That's mm-hmm. That's about as old school as you can get <laughs> right there. Yeah. See, I, I came along in a probably 83 or 84 with the Mincer Red Box was when yeah. I jumped into the fray. So, now it was, yeah. was around 77, 78 mm-hmm. for me. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, always in the Portland area, or did you grow up someplace else? No, no, no. I grew up, uh, I grew up in upstate New York in a town called Ithaca. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went to school in Maine. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a little bit. And then I spent 10 years in Boulder, Colorado, before moving now to Portland, where I've been for the last 10 years. So Fantastic. I will say Ithaca, I, I spent a year in uh, Austin, Texas, too. And I'll say that Ithaca, Austin, Boulder, and Portland all kind of feel sometimes like they're basically the same city, just different sizes of it. Sure, sure, sure. Very cool. So you mentioned uh, briefly the uh, the contest setting or the <laughs> setting contest that you participated in. Um, and uh, I think if my memory serves that the contest was around what, 2002 and uh, 2003, and three. OK, very good. And uh, so you participated in a setting contest when uh, Wizards had put out just a kind of a general call mm-hmm. for that. Well, it, a contest is a is a slightly uh, loaded term. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the fantasy setting search, and mm. the reason I, I hesitate on contest is really it was technically an open call. Okay. They basically mm-hmm. said anybody can send in a one-page description of a world, and the big distinction between open call and contest is Wizards employees were submitting settings for it. Like it was sure, sure. anybody could do this. It wasn't supposed to be like American Idol or something like that. Right, right. Um, and they could have decided they didn't like any of them. You know, it wasn't like they were promising they were going to pick one, but they got 12,000 entries and uh, they basically you sent in a one page description that was just a, a real you know, highlight. What's this world? Who are the heroes? How does magic work? What's cool about it? You know, then they picked out of 12,000, which they did not expect to get that many. Uh, they picked 11 of those. 
and we turned them into 10 page descriptions. Then they picked three of those, bought the rights to them and uh, had us turn them each into 100 page uh, story Bibles. And that was me, uh, Rich Berlew of Order of the Stick. And I believe his name is Philip Nathan Toomey. It's been a while. He hasn't, uh, you know, done as much. Uh, and then from that, they picked everyone. Fantastic. Very cool, man. So, uh, so how developed was Eberron pre that open call? Not remotely. Uh, okay. So this isn't the case where it's not like, uh, you know, Ed Greenwood, where uh, Forgotten Realms was his home campaign before sure. this. I actually submitted seven different ideas to the fantasy setting search because there was gotcha. no limit. Mm -hmm. And Eberron was number seven. And it was and, and to me, I think it's why it ended up being the one that was chosen. It was the one that I just wrote because I thought it was a fun idea. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd done a couple other ideas and I had at the time, as I said, I was in the computer game business. I've been working on an MMORPG uh, that was based on like pulp adventure. Uh, it's not something that came out, but, you know, the same sort of flavor as Uncharted or Indiana Jones. And so Eberron really came from two pieces. The first was me having spent three years immersed in pulp uh, you know, serials and such saying, okay, now what if you took that tone and mm. really put that into D&D? And then the second aspect was something that, again, as I said, this wasn't a specific setting, but it's an idea that has always been something that's resonated with me of that in D&D, &D, arcane magic, the magic used by wizards and magic users, behaves in a scientific manner. It is reliable, it's repeatable, one wizard can learn a spell from another wizard, and so that's always raised the question of if it behaves like science, why isn't it used like a science? You know, why do we see just a handful of wizards off in their towers instead of magic as industry? You know, magic is a real tool of civilization. And so just one of those core ideas of Eberron was just if we'd had magic arcane magic as it works in D&D &D in the Renaissance, what does the world look like 300 years later? That's that's fascinating. I, uh, and I'm especially fascinated by the fact that you said your first theme influence was the pulpy part of it rather than the magic as technology part of it. Because in my mind, when I think of Eberron, that if, if you forced me to describe oh, yeah. Eberron in one sentence, that's what I would have said. No, but, no, uh, absolutely. That's yeah. And well, but part of them went hand in hand because the mm. thing was, I was thinking, as I said, pulp and noir. Uh, so it was both that Raiders of the Lost Ark Uncharted, but also big fan of things like the Maltese Falcon, the Big Sleep, things like that. Sure. Uh, but the point is that, well, that's all set in the, you know, 20s to 40s sort of time. And so in thinking about it, Part of thinking about that was to say, oh, okay, and do we have wandslingers instead of people using bows? You know, sort of a, a world that had, you know, the dragon mark houses, which were essentially these big corporations, you know, sort of having these sort of forces in the world that have a bit more of a modern flavor, even if they are still dressed in the trappings of fantasy. Sure, sure, sure. Very good. And so when you started this, um, because that was one of my questions I was going to ask was, had this been a homebrew setting beforehand that then you shrank down onto a page? Because that's one sort of creative process. Right, for sure. But in this case, you started with the seed and yes. then built out from there. And and I'll say, when I got the call from Wizards saying that they liked the idea and that I was going to the second round to advance it to 10 pages, I, I was was dumbfounded. And I was like, well, dang, OK, now we've got to figure out how this works. You know, I just threw together, as I said, the one pager in part, I wrote it because it was just fun. Like, you know, I just felt like this is a this is an entertaining idea. Uh, I remember I've I've said this before, I think elsewhere, but the very opening of the one pager was uh, uh, see if I can get it right. It was uh, Mickey Redblade was sharpening a dagger when she walked in. She was three feet of trouble, the most beautiful halfling he'd ever seen. But he could see it in her eyes. She was in danger. And it was just totally just saying, what if you took that, you know, uh, as I said, Maltese Falcon and cast it into Dungeons and Dragons? 
And I'll say I've always been a fan of things like Shadowrun, Arcanum, uh, but part of the point is a lot of things like that very much set magic and technology in opposition. That Shadowrun puts fantasy together with sort of cyberpunk tropes, but they exist sort of side by side in the same world. And right from the beginning, in that one pager, one of the things I made very clear is this is not about magic and technology. This is about magic as technology. This is about if you took everything we're used to in D&D and just said, but what's it look like in 300 years? Isn't it, shouldn't it be changing? Shouldn't the world evolve uh, with this, you know, these tools? That's great. That's a great thought because, yeah, that's that would have been one of the questions I would have wanted to ask you about that, like maybe in 2004 is, oh, so like Shadowrun <laughs> and uh, but in Shadowrun, there's a hard edge between those two. Factors. Exactly. Yes. Uh, another game that was out at the time, because when I put in the submission, I very clearly said it's not like this because uh, was a game called Arcanum, which was a great game. And it was more of a sort of steampunky cyber, uh, steampunky Shadowrun, basically. But again, it had a very hard divide between magic and technology are in opposition. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this isn't a world where technology exists in addition to magic. It's a world in which the technology they use is magic. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, it's something that actually comes up a lot. I'll, I'll raise uh, a lot of people are basically always ask why there aren't guns in Eberron, why there aren't firepower and firearms, gunpowder weapons. And again, not that I mind people doing whatever they want in Eberron, but the reason there aren't is because that was the idea in the beginning. This isn't about magic with guns. It's about saying, what do you create that serves the same role? And I'll say that's why in uh, fifth edition, we do highlight the idea of wand slingers, yes. who are people who basically fill that same role as the gunslinger, except that they're using cantrips, you know, because that's the, the magic version of that same concept. Sure, sure. Yeah. So there are gun-like objects in Eberron and and eldritch cannon devices. Absolutely. Thing. Does the artificer make that? Am I remembering that uh, right? The artificer and, uh, does. And and yeah. one of the things actually in Exploring Eberron in particular yes. is it talks a little more about the actual weapons that were used in the last war, including arcane artillery. Okay. Uh, because this is the point to me is they don't use cannons, but they have tools that are absolutely as effective or more sure. as mundane cannons. It's sure. just think about if the, as I said, the, the principles of arcane magic, if that's the tools you have to work with, then what do you create to fight battles, to communicate across long distances, uh, you know, entertainment, medicine? What is the what is the magic answer to that look like? Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. So you've touched on some things that make Eberron unique about D&D settings here. Mm -hmm. um, what so and kind of the major things, the 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 pulp nature, the noir nature and the uh, and the uh, magic technology thing. Um, what else about the setting like the world would you say is is makes it set apart from other D&D settings? Well, I mean, there's a couple different factors. Uh, one of the things is with everything in Eberron, I tried to take a look at things that have always existed in D&D and either, you know, find a place for them that was a little more concrete than often existed uh, or to just sort of think about consequences and, and sort of different ways of looking at them. Um, one of the points I'll say is let's take gnomes just mm. as an example, where gnomes have traditionally been, uh, at the time Eberron came out, gnomes have very much traditionally been comic relief. They'd really been sort of defined by the tinker gnomes of uh, Kryn, and, and in general they didn't really have a very solid place. And I said, well, okay, let's look at gnomes. You know, gnomes are small, they're smart, they're sneaky, they have natural illusion abilities, and they can talk to burrowing mammals. Um, they're not strong. They're not going to be good at fighting. So they're not going to build a military nation. So they're going to have to outthink people. They're also good at alchemy, uh, among other things. And so basically from there, we took this idea of, okay, the, el the gnomes are going to have this society that is much more sort of Venice in the Medici's 
you know, they're good at alchemy. So, okay, they're going to be using poisons. You know, they are going to be essentially much more clever and intriguey using illusion, these sort of tools, which led to the idea of the trust, uh, which basically what I'd like to say is, is in Eberron, the gnomes are the scariest race in the setting. Like you do not <laughs> want to mess with the gnomes. Um, but also, you know, just lots of little things like this is one that isn't a big part of the setting. Like people in the setting don't know it, but it's just a perfect example to me of Eberron looking at things in different ways. And that is we have a nation of monsters and uh, that is one of the, the sort of things Eberron did back in 2004 was saying we are not going to have intelligent creatures whether they're humans orcs elves or whatever they are dragons even intelligent mortal creatures should be able to choose their own path in life and basically are not bound to an alignment so mm -hmm. in Eberron from the start we said orcs aren't evil red dragons aren't you know aren't evil gold dragons aren't inherently good you know that basically intelligent creatures choose their own path uh, so we started with that principle of saying any intelligent creature, you can't assume, oh, that just because it's an ogre, it's evil. Sure. Um, with that, we have a nation, Droam, which is a nation raised by monsters. Uh, and one of the things we called out there is, oh, they don't have a lot of wizards, but they have monsters. So what can you do with the tools of monsters? And one of the points is uh, to feed the masses. They have something called grist, which is essentially soylent troll. Uh, they make <laughs> troll sausage. Because part of the point is if I can, like, cut off a troll's arm and it grows back, well, if I could eat that, right. now we've got a resource. So they have troll farms uh, where they make food for the masses. And and that's just, as I said, a little bit of, of the point of Eberron is looking at these things. Like, trolls have always regenerated. That's just been part of trolls in uh, in D&D. &D. And yet here we just wanted to stop and say, but imagine that actually exists, what would be the impact of that? Sure. Um, another thing I'll say is that from the beginning, when it came out, one of my basic thoughts is how is this different from Forgotten Realms? Not because there's anything bad about Forgotten Realms, but because it was out there and well-established and had been for a decade. And so one of the major differences with Eberron is the approach to gods and religion. That in Eberron... Uh, we basically said the gods do not manifest. You will mm. never meet a god. They do not have statistics. We don't even know for absolute certainty that they exist. We can assume they exist because clerics get spells, but that's not a certainty. And the thing about that is it doesn't allow you to have a story like the Time of Troubles, but it does allow you to have stories about heresy, about schisms, about, you know, faith essentially, because if the gods are just essentially really big uh, angels or demons, there's no need for faith because they are just a fact. They simply yes. exist. They're more like, I like to say that uh, sort of classic D&D gods, it's really more like sports teams. It's not a question of, I don't believe that the Seahawks exist. It's just a question of, am I going to support the Seahawks or the Broncos? Yeah. And in Eberron, we really wanted to explore that idea that, no, religion really is about faith. Just because, again, it means there are stories you can tell in Eberron that make no sense in a setting where you can go and shake hands with Thor just as, likewise, there are stories you can tell in uh, Faerun that will make no sense in Eberron. And it was very much, Eberron was never supposed to replace the settings that were out there. Uh, it was about saying what stories, you know, uh, what can we do with the world to let you tell stories you couldn't tell in other worlds. That's excellent. Yeah, I've, I've pondered that uh, many times myself in, within the more standardized D&D settings where uh, the pantheons and, in fact, many multiple overlapping pantheons uh, exist. Uh, what does the word faith mean in that setting? Yeah, mm -hmm. something certainly different than how we might talk yep. about it in our in our actual world or how they would talk about it in Eberron, clearly. Yeah, well, and it is a funny point there because early on when Eberron came out, I had a bunch of people essentially saying, well, if the gods don't appear, why would anyone believe in them? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, do you, do we live in the same world? I mean, have you <laughs> met a god sure. recently? Yeah. 
Yeah, and all humans in most times and most places in history have been religious, you yeah. know, um, with, without manifestations of, of yeah, the sun exactly. god exactly. showing up and giving you cleric spells or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And and interestingly, it's the same way of Ebron has a different planar cosmology. And that is something that we decided from the start, but it's only with exploring Ebron that we've actually really finally got to explore it in the depth that I wanted. Uh, but one of the points there is just as you don't meet a god, uh, the afterlife is also mysterious. That souls of the dead go to a place called Dolor, uh, where they, they pass through they fade they go away and we don't know what happens next and again it's that same idea of faith some people believe they are reincarnated some people believe they are going on to a realm where the gods do exist that just no mortal can can touch uh but i did have some people saying well without that concrete afterlife without knowing that my character is going to go to celestia like why am i why am i adventuring or whatever and i'm like well again the point of this is this is a world where you don't want to die. <laughs> like, you know, that's not actually the goal of, of the game here, you sure. know. Uh, so try not to find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and in part, it also goes very much to that point that Eberron, as I said, has aspects of pulp, but it has the aspects of noir. And part of that noir aspect is saying that good and evil are not always so clear cut, that stories don't always end well, that, uh, you know, we like to say the the bad guys aren't always monsters and the monsters aren't always bad guys, you know, and, and that kind of uncertainty goes along with that. We don't have the absolute manifestation of ultimate good who's going to come down and, and do things, you know, that we have room for, again, mortal frailty and uncertainty. Mm, that's great. That's great. I as I was reviewing uh, some some Eberron material in pre preparation for this, I the, some of this seemed, for what it is, as a fantasy world setting, shockingly grounded in reality, <laughs> in odd ways, you know. Um, and uh, like even the the thing you mentioned before about the the trolls as food, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in in a real world, we, we we would certainly find a way to commodify things like that, right, you know. Right. Um, absolutely. And and, of course, the next question is, well, if you can eat trolls, why doesn't everybody eat trolls? Why haven't they been doing it forever? And so there we have to say, oh, actually, troll meat is incredibly dangerous and poisonous, you know, to eat. Mm. So it's the trick of the, the daughters of Sorakel have come up with a way to do it. It's, they've got yes. the, the secret herbs and spices that let you eat trolls. So, you know, it's that you start with one thing. Then you get the answer and then you say, OK, but mm -hmm. then what are the consequences mm -hmm. of that? And that's my favorite thing of world building is just considering the consequences, make a change and then think about and what are the ramifications of that? Sure, sure, sure. So, Keith, let me let me jump to a different gear, more about your, your personal life in, in this. Uh, do you. Uh, presumably you're you're involved in D and D often playing oh, yeah. and running and sitting about doing doing such things where nerds sitting around tables rolling dice and yelling at each other which is how my groups go yep. <laughs> and uh and uh do you do you always have to run in eberron at this point in your life like have you been stuck as the eberron guy or how does that work for you all right, so there's a bunch of different factors to that. I will say that growing up, I certainly was the game master 80 to 90% of the time. And and I like that. You know, I like telling stories. You know, I mean, that that's uh, good for me. Um, I have had the opportunity to play in a number of really good campaigns over the last decade. And uh, the funny factor is actually a lot of campaigns I've played in have been Eberron campaigns. Hmm. And some people have been like, damn, I wouldn't want to run Eberron for, you know, like, I don't know, but I've had some people do a really good job of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I've had a lot of fun playing in Eberron as well. Um, I will say that back, let's see... Around sort of 2014 to 2017, uh, I developed a role-playing game called Phoenix Dawn Command, and mm -hmm. I actually spent a lot of time playtesting that. I really love Phoenix, and I'm hopefully going to get back and do a little more with it in the future. Uh, so in part, I'll say during the development of Phoenix, I was definitely spending all my time uh, in uh, Delia. So, uh, so there's that. Today... 
Um, it, it's mixed. You know, when I run a game, I usually run it in Eberron because there's so many aspects of the world I enjoy running. I've run a couple uh, games set in uh, a nation called Kabara, which is basically sort of a fantasy Western sort of environment uh, that I've really enjoyed. I've run a session set in a place called Kalistan or a campaign set in Kalistan, which is more sort of gangs of New York uh tough city region and so you know i've done a bunch of a bunch of different things and uh like i said i've, I've done one shots that aren't in eberron but if i'm gonna run a game as i say i love the world it's not like it's a hardship uh i've played over the last three years a couple of uh campaigns set in eberron uh, i also have my friend dan garrison who's the co-designer of phoenix dawn command has run a couple of campaigns i played in uh just basically in systems he's designed on his own in completely different worlds. So it's not like the only things I play are either Eberron or D&D for that sure. matter. Sure. Well, I'm glad you're getting to play some because oh, guys yeah. like us tend to get stuck behind the screen almost full time. <laughs> yeah, no, I have, I have, uh, I have two uh, campaigns I'm actively playing in at the moment with D&D that I'm playing in. And in one of them, I'm playing a uh, gnome artificer actually using one of the subclasses from Exploring Eberron. Uh, and in another one, uh, they're actually going through Rise of Tiamat. So mm. it's it's just classic, you know, pre-existing uh, adventures, but it's fun. And there I'm actually playing a Warforged cleric. Uh, and it's sort of a fun idea because one of the religions we have in Eberron is the the path of the becoming god which mm. is the idea that there's a group of warforged who believe that they have to make the body for their god to manifest and so my idea is that even though this uh campaign is obviously set in uh you know Faerun, uh that basically i took what's called the far traveler background and it's that i am this you know warforged pilgrim that has somehow gotten from eberron to this place to try to find pieces of the becoming god uh, so even though I'm not playing an Eberron, I'm still playing an Eberron character and that's kind of fun. Sure. Sure. That's great. Yeah. We, uh, I, I run two tables regularly and, uh, and I just literally like less than three weeks ago played fifth edition D and D for the first time. I mean, I have, I have more than 130 sessions run yep. since yep. fifth came out. But uh, I literally just became a player of 5e. <laughs> no, I, I get yeah. it. And uh, that's usually, I will say, I think the height of my running in the last decade was when I was doing Phoenix, there was a period where I had three different campaigns each week mm. just because we were doing so much playtesting. And so that was a lot of, a lot of play. Uh, as I said, right now I'm in two games, uh, two campaigns as a player, and then I have a couple of other campaigns that have been sort of on hold uh, because I've been very busy. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Okay, very good. So, um, Keith, uh, turning our attention into the 5th edition days, since we've started talking about that. Uh, so, Eberron, Rising from the Last War, which I've got sitting right here. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, what changes were made to bring Eberron into the 5e setting? Uh, just mechanics, or did the lore and the timeline advance some? How would you talk about that? Well, we had a sort of path to it, because also Rising came out in 2019, but in right. 2018, we released the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron on That's the right. DMs Guild. That's right. And so it was basically, 2018 was Wayfinders, which was, uh, they, they like to say it was sort of an extended Unearthed Arcana article. Mm -hmm. You know, it was testing the waters, it was seeing if there was interest, and uh, in trying things out. So we had Wayfinders in 2018, Rising in 2019, and now in 2020, I've got Exploring Everyone, which is not official, but, you know, it's continuing that path. Uh, it is one of the things of both in 5th and 4th, we considered things like, do we advance the the timeline, you know, very much like Forgotten Realms multiple mm -hmm. times, said, well, let's jump forward uh, a certain amount of time. Let's add a cataclysmic event. Uh, and we've always ended up with Eberron not doing that. That the two things for us are both the default period at which Eberron begins, 998, uh, is a very 
sort of critical moment in history when all sorts of interesting things are on the precipice of happening. And part of the point is if we jumped forward, even let's just say 10 years, we'd have to answer all the questions of mm. how did those things resolve. And part of it for us was essentially not wanting to mess with all the campaigns of everyone who had been playing it for 10 years. Uh, of if you decided that this is what happened in your world, basically if you didn't play Eberron, you don't care what time we put it in because sure. it's all new to you. And if you have played Eberron, we sort of wanted to just keep it at the same time and say you can decide, you know, like based on your old campaign, uh, do you just restart it or do you move forward but take into account the events of your campaign? Mm. Uh, so in terms of story, very little has changed. If anything, the main thing that has changed is that there were a couple of changes made in fourth edition to catch, you know, to sort of incorporate various things. And some of those we've actually sort of rolled back and said, uh, never mind. Uh, the biggest, most obvious one of those is in fourth edition, the plane of Bator, the nine hells was dropped into Eberron's cosmology. Um, and it was just sort of a, oh, well, we've got all these books out you know, that, that feature it, uh, but it never really made any sense in, you know, it didn't fit everyone's cosmology. And so when we worked on Rising from the Last War, we took it out. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I will say that was a big change, like just thinking about when Jeremy Crawford, James Wyatt, and I sat down to work on um, Rising from the Last War, and we're basically like, well, what what do we need to, to have in here? Uh, one of the things was the dwarves, the dwarves of the Murrholds, uh, that we generally all agreed that of the different takes on the races, you know, with Eberron, as I said, the gnomes are sneaky, you know, assassins and spies. The elves have a culture based around uh, ancestor worship. And, you know, some of them essentially try to become avatars of their ancestors and are relentlessly martial. Uh, others of them are uh, sort of keep their ancestors undead uh, and have this sort of undying court that rules things. The halflings are uh, domesticate dinosaurs and, you know, have this, um, you know, hunter, you know, hunting culture uh, that, you know, all these were very different from uh, traditional settings and the dwarves were not as distinctive mm. they we emphasize the fact that oh the dwarves have resources and that the dwarves are a little bit of a sort of oil baron situation so we sort of looked at the impact of the traditional dwarven archetype in a way that some settings uh, hadn't but we didn't really it wasn't that exciting to people and so in developing Rising, we were like, well, well, what can we do with them that, that isn't completely changing things, but that makes them more interesting? And what we did with that was added, we'd always said that the dwarves had discovered that there was an ancient dwarven civilization beneath the Murrholds that had been destroyed long ago by what are called the Dalkir. Uh, the sort of beings from uh, the plane of madness that are the creators of beholders, mind flayers, all of those sorts of things. And we basically in, in third edition just said, oh, yeah, there was an ancient dwarven civilization. It was wiped out by the Dalkir. There's just a lot of ruins down there. It's just a dungeon. In fifth edition, we said, OK, but what if they were poking around there and discovered that the aberrations never left? that there's this realm just filled with all kinds of terrors and that the dwarves are both actively fighting a war against those creatures, but also using their technology. We always said that the Dalkir create what are called symbionts that are living tools that confuse with your body. You know, you can get a gauntlet that is like a claw gauntlet that actually attaches to your arm uh, or, you know, an eye worm that, that fuses with your shoulder and like it's a little beholder eye ray sort of thing. Um, and we basically said, well, let's say that there are dwarf clans who are recovering these symbionts from the, the realm below and actually working those into their civilization. 
And so that was just an interesting idea that made the dwarves very distinct and that from a cultural standpoint, you have the dwarves who want nothing to do with this. You have the dwarves who are embracing it and exploring, you know, making it their own. Uh, and one of the facts of that was that that was a fun, very different take, but we didn't have a lot of room in the end to explore it in Rising from the Last War. And so that is where I've added, a, you know, one of the, there's like a 20 page section in Exploring Eberron that is about the Mora Dwarves specifically getting into that. And there's even more material adding a lot of new symbionts to, to back that up. Yeah, so hence the uh, the picture in uh, Eberron Rising from the Last War of the Dwarf with the, the tentacle whip thing yep. on his arm. Yeah. Yep, okay. yep. And if you look at the um, the cover of Exploring Eberron, right up front, you have a dwarf warlock uh, who has a claw gauntlet and he has an eye worm peeking over his shoulder. Ah. And uh, one of the points is he is wearing what appear to be sunglasses. And a lot of people could say, why is he wearing sunglasses in a dungeon? And it's because he's what's called a ruin-bound dwarf, uh, which essentially have sort of innate symbionts in it, but they have weird mutations. And the point is he's not wearing the sunglasses to keep the light out. He's wearing the sunglasses because you don't want to see his eyes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's great. So transitioning into the the new book, the reason we actually came here, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. I could do this for hours. But, uh, Fair enough. I want to honor your time too. But so talking about the new book, exploring Eberron, uh, what led to the decision to do this second book at this point? So the main thing about this is this is a book I have wanted to write for you know a decade. That the the thing about it is up until the release of the Wayfinder's Guide. Uh, you couldn't legally create any Eberron material. Eberron was the, and is, the intellectual property of Wizards of the Coast. And so the only Eberron material that could come out was what was produced by Wizards of the Coast. And the main thing is, ever since we started, uh, you know, ever since the first book came out in third edition, there have always been parts of the world that I have really loved and wanted to explore that just we never had a chance to. Uh, a big one, I will say there, because it's one of the, the eight chapters of Exploring Eberron, is the planes. And the point is, when we created Eberron, we decided there is a unique planar cosmology, uh, but then, you know, I always wanted a Planes of Eberron book. And it just never, you know, made it to the top of the list. And so it's been frustrating to me that over the course of 15 years, you know, even when Anuba came out in fourth edition, even when we worked on Rising, there just wasn't enough room in the book. You know, there were things you had to cover and we couldn't afford to put 60 pages of planar content uh, in Rising from the Last War. But I have always wanted to give the planes of Eberron, you know, as I said, they are different from the planes of the Great Wheel. And I always wanted them to have sort of the, the proper uh, exploration. And so that's part of exploring Eberron is the planes. Another thing that was there right from the very beginning, but then never explored in detail was the idea of aquatic civilizations mm. that we have merfolk, Lakatha, Suagin. And my point is these are intelligent species with their own cultures. If you sail across the ocean, that's no different than you riding a, a horse through someone's country. What are they like? What is the relationship between them and the surface? You know, how does this affect things? And again, just one of those topics that never was essentially important enough to to come out officially. Uh, the more dwarves I mentioned, the Dakani goblins, where the whole idea is that the goblins had an advanced civilization long before humanity ever came up. We wanted to look at that. Um, Droam, the nation of monsters, as well as just smaller things. Um, we had in 3.5 a source book called The Forge of War that talked a lot about the history of the war. But what it didn't touch was something I really wanted to see that was, but what are the weapons of war? Mm. You know, in this, again, in a world where magic is our tool, what are the equivalents of cannons? You know, what are people fighting with? So there's a section in Exploring Eberron about that. 
Uh, you know, so a lot of these sort of just things that I always wanted to address, but that never made it into any official book. Sure. So you're saying there's some material in the new book specifically about that pre, pre that previous goblinoid kingdom that existed in uh, right. on Corvair before the humans came and, yes. and displaced so, them. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that around uh, about 10,000 years ago, the goblins had a powerful, advanced, um, very successful civilization that lasted thousands of years. Um, and that was destroyed as well by the Dalkir, the, the creators of aberrations uh, and such. And so when humans arrived on the on Corvair, that civilization was gone. But you have the ruins, you have, you know, a lot of things are built on goblin foundations. Uh, but then there was also the idea, so you have the modern goblin civilizations that know that that was part of their history, but don't possess the techniques or, or, you know, tools of that civilization. But we've always had what are called the heirs of Dakan. And it's almost that idea that when the civilization was collapsing, they went down into fallout shelters, basically, uh, and just said, we're going to wait this out. And now they finally returned. So it is that idea that you have both the the modern goblins that, oh, we're kind of used to, uh, but then you also have these very advanced, very disciplined uh, goblin forces that that the modern people don't even, don't really know much about, but they're suddenly popping up and they're far you know better equipped and trained uh, than you're used to when you're dealing with goblins. And so this gets both into the history, but it's also specifically, and how does this affect the world today? And if you wanted to play a Dakani goblin, uh, not only do you have all of that, information about their culture and society, but we also have uh, racial statistics uh, for the the Dakani goblin, bugbear, and, and hobgoblin. We also have racial statistics for uh, playable gnolls, because in Droem in particular, gnolls serve a very different role in the world than they do in default D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, Likewise, we do have a number of subclasses. Some of those are tied to, for example, the Dakani. We have the Dirge Singer Bard uh, and the Forge Adept, the Dashor, which is a type of artificer. Um, We have a monk path that is designed really to reflect sort of unique traditions of changelings, Kalistar, shifters, Warforged, you know, what does it mean? If you're a changeling monk, can you like actually learn to like stretch your arm across the room or, Mm. you know, grow claws? Um, We have a druid path, the circle of forged, which is essentially let's warforged, although anyone can do it. But the idea is let's have warforged druids turn into warforged creatures instead of just uh, my warforged druid becomes an actual flesh and blood (laughs) bird, which always seems weird. So they're they're magical transformers. Um, they are magical transformers. I will say that that Ravage was my favorite transformer growing up. So I'm with you, man. Yeah, I was a Soundwave guy for sure. Yeah, Soundwave, so Soundwave with yeah. with Ravage, mm-hmm. Laserbeak. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was very happy to see see classic Soundwave in the Bumblebee movie. That was mm. that was a you know took me back. Um, what else have I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we have another artificer class that's called the Maverick that basically draws on some of the more 3.5 flavor of the artificer as sort of tinker uh, and creator. Yeah, that's great. Some of that sounds so great. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, 20 minutes ago, I, I got so excited when you said the phrase dinosaur riding halflings. Because mm-hmm. that's that may be my single favorite thing about all the Eberron verse is just that phrase. That that phrase will take me a long way in life. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because again, uh, I came up with the sort of core idea of Eberron uh, in the fantasy setting search. But the point is, once they picked it, uh, I went to Wizards and you know, went to Seattle for a couple of weeks and sat in a room with Bill Slavisek, Chris Perkins, James Wyatt. And, and essentially, you know, as I said, I planted that seed, but it was all together as that group that we really created the Eberron as it exists today. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember that conversation of I had in the original story Bible nomadic tribes of halflings. 
And I remember someone, I think it was Chris, you know, just saying like, okay, well, I mean, this is cool, but how do we make it cooler? Well, like, what what do they ride? Like, what are their the animals that they use? And I, we still to this day can't agree who it was who threw it out. I think it was James Wyatt because his his like five year old son was in a dinosaur phase, and mm-hmm. and he was like, well, what about dinosaurs? And we were all just like, wait, half lane riding a raptor, boom. Like, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, oh, that's great. And and again, that's like a little thing that we tried to do with Eberronos. That is the point of from that original AD&D hardcover book that I had back in 79, it had statistics for dinosaurs in the monster manual. You know, they've always been there, uh, but not a lot of settings have used them in a meaningful way. Likewise, we tried with the setting to say, well, let's put psionics somewhere meaningful Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted from the start, we knew that we didn't want to follow the path of, say, Dark Sun, which really made them absolutely part of the foundation of the setting. But we also wanted to say, but if you like them, we wanted something that said, if you like psionics, there is a very concrete place in the world for them. And if you don't like psionics, it is very easy to ignore that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with all of it, we tried to do that sort of what are some things in D&D that people often don't pay attention to and give them a place. Sure, sure. So, Keith, uh, your book seems to be selling very well on DMs Guild. Uh, When I checked uh, this morning, it said that it is an adamantine bestseller, and I had to figure that out. But apparently adamantine is the best of the bestsellers. Yes. So that's that's got to feel great. That they have a name for and we, we hit adamantine in eight days. Oh, that's so uh, great. So, yeah, it's doing quite well. I'm very happy with it. I'm very proud of the book. Uh, I'll shout out to uh, Wayne Chang, who was the producer and art director. Laura Hersbrunner, who uh, did the layout and editing. And it's a 230,000-word book. And wow. so that's a lot of editing work for one person. Um, and to uh, William Broly, who helped develop the monsters, subclasses, magic items. You know, magic, uh, a lot of the concrete uh, mechanical work in the book. Sure. So tell our tell our listeners how big this book is. How many pages? So it is 247 pages, but as I said, it's about 236,000 words, which we we checked it out. It is actually more words than Rising from the Last War. Wow. Even though it is fewer pages, because our word, uh, our layout is very dense. Sure. Um, so it is is as I said, 247 pages, but they're dense pages. Mm-hmm. It also has about 50 pieces of new art that we commissioned for the book, along with some, uh, you know, some reused art, but a lot of entirely new, really wonderful pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, the the uh, the rising book was 320, I think, and this it is 247, huge. but with a much bigger word count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. So, um, you've mentioned quite a few details that are coming in in the Exploring Eberron, or have come now at this point in the Exploring Eberron book. You mentioned the dwarves with uh, exploring the new and old symbionts. Uh, you've mentioned especially the, the 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 information about the planes and looking at the uh, the table of contents. That's a good 60 pages of planar stuff from what I can tell, or really close to it. Yeah, about four to six pages per plane. And and part of the point of that is is one of the themes throughout this book is it's 247 pages. About 180 of that is primarily lore. It is more Mm -hmm. about the world. But Mm -hmm. throughout that, we have always tried to say, how is this useful? Mm-hmm. that it's not just let me tell you a whole bunch of random story stuff. It's saying, like, if we're going to talk about history, how could that history affect your modern-day game? Mm-hmm. How could it inspire a character? With the planes, it does talk about, okay, what do you find if you visit? But it also talks about what kind of magic items might come from this plane. Why mm. would creatures from this plane come to Eberron? What are manifest zones that affect the world? What are story hooks? So throughout all of this, it's not just a dump of lore. It's filled with hooks for how could this inspire a character or an adventure. Uh, but it is, as I said, about 180 pages exploring the world, about 60 pages of new character options, magic items, feats, backgrounds, monsters. Mm, that's great. So uh, 
Keith, you've talked from all those things. Are there any other specific details about this new book that you really want our listeners to know about? Because you've touched on a bunch of stuff, so you've given us plenty. But is there any other like super, super exciting thing that you're just like, man, I want people to know about this? I, I think we've hit, you know, most of the big ones. What I will mm-hmm. say is part of it is this this isn't an official book. This is very much what I do at my table. This is how I run Eberron. Mm-hmm. And so in particular, uh, in the chapter about the religions, there's always been like a lot of like slightly contradictory stuff in different books. And I'm saying this is for once and for all me saying this is how I see these uh, and how it makes, you know, hopefully makes sense to me. Um, but as I say, to me, I'll, I'll speak to the planes in particular of when I was writing the planar chapter, there were even for me a couple of planes that going into it, I was like, well, that's not very interesting. I mean, it's the plane of ice. How interesting can the plane of ice be? Mm-hmm. And I will say every plane by the time I was done with it, I was like, okay, when can I run an adventure here? You know, I mean, there's like, uh, I'm, I'm so happy with both the ideas we came up with, but also, again, that degree to which everything in the book is about how can you use it? You know, how is this this going to be ideas you can just take and immediately build a story with? That's great. That is great. So um, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of your book. Uh, so you can get a book only on the uh, DMs Guild. And it is uh, Exploring Eberron. It is available at PDF, uh, but you can also. It's hardcover, print-on-demand, and if you buy those two together, uh, it's just $5 to, to add the PDF on top of the, the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am holding the hardcover in my hand. And we hold it up for me so I can see it? Because yeah. I haven't, got, I haven't yeah. gotten my physical copy yet. Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's nice and solid. And of course... Again, uh, sort of speaking to the the different size of paper, I think if you put it next to Rising from the Last War, it's actually slightly larger, even though the page count is lower. Mm-hmm. And uh, as for me, you can find me. I'm uh, at HellCowKeith on Twitter. My website is Keith-Baker.com, and I post lots of different Eberron articles and Q&As there. And uh, my game company is Together Studios. That's T-W-O, Together. Uh, so togetherstudios.com and we as I said made Phoenix on command we made a bunch of other games such as Illimat with the Decemberists and we have the Adventure Zone game coming out later this year that's great well thank you so much Keith for spending this time with us I really appreciate it absolutely thank you for having me friends you've been listening to another special edition of the Tome Show News thank you to our special guest Keith Baker I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a physical copy of this book very soon. To our listeners, thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with us. This is your Tome Show News anchor, Lewis Brenton, signing off. You'll be hearing from us again very soon. Mm-hmm.